A few weeks ago, I uh, had the opportunity to take my kids to the pool. Anyone else been to the pool yet this summer? Yeah? Well, I love the pool, and I love taking my kids to the pool, and so we couldn't wait. And uh, a few weeks ago, it was just after that weirdly cold Memorial Day weekend that we had here in Georgia, where it was like, are we sure we're in Georgia still? And, and, but it was a Tuesday, and it felt like it was warm throughout the day, and so it was like, oh, cool, I thought it was like 90 degrees, and so I get home from work, and, and I take the kids to the pool, and it was nice and sunny out, but by the time that we get in the car and drive just down the street in our neighborhood to the pool and out of the car and up to the pool, clouds came in, and uh, if you are a parent in the room, you know that it doesn't always go quickly getting kids in and out of the car, and so we get to the pool, and by the time we walk out there, clouds are covering the pool, and now it's chilly. Like, it's like cold, y'all. Like, the wind is blowing, and I was like, man, did I make a mistake? And as soon as we get there, my son Hudson, he doesn't care about the cold, and so he jumps straight into the pool, and he's just swimming all over the place, but my daughter Hadley, she goes and dips her foot in, and she's like, (gasps) Daddy, it's cold, it's cold. And she starts to come up to me and grab my leg. And she's like, it's too cold, it's too cold. I wanna go home. And I was like, no, we're not going home. And she's sitting there whining. And this other mom uh, is, is over in the kiddie pool. And this mom's over there in the kiddie pool with a bunch of kids and she overhears what's happening and and she thinks that she's gonna be helpful and so she starts to like holler over at me and she's like, hey, you can take your kids over here to the kiddie pool. Hey, you can come over here, the water is warm. And I just like ignored her for a little bit because I was like, I don't wanna do that, I don't wanna do that. And finally, I look at her and I was like, no, I'm good. That's not gonna happen, we're gonna swim here. And, And I denied this lady's request for a few reasons. First off, one, I know that that water is not warm because the water is warm. Y'all feel me? Like there are kids swimming in this kiddie pool doing something else. Number two, number two, I will never and have never let my kids hang out in the kiddie pool. Okay, first off, it's just weird for me as a grown man to be hanging out in the kiddie pool. Like no one wants to see that. No one wants to see the guy, the dad just sitting over there with the kids at the kiddie pool. Like that's just weird, okay? But I've made a decision that my kids have never and they will never hang out in the kiddie pool. And there's a few reasons for this. Number one, a kiddie pool ain't a pool, okay? It's just a wannabe pool. It's pretending that it's a pool. It is not a pool, okay? Don't let anyone tell you they're lying to you. Number two, the other reason why I will not let my kids go to the kiddie pool, pool, because I do not want them to get comfortable in those shallow waters, See, there's something about a kiddie pool that, that people will start to get like, like drawn to and they'll wanna hang out in the shallow waters for as long as they can. But I know that my kids, in order for them to experience the greatest joy, the greatest fun that they can have at the pool is for them to jump into the deep water. And anyone will tell you that it requires a little bit of resilience to learn to swim in the deep pool. Like it requires resilience for a kid or even an adult to learn to swim. Like we've all done it, okay? You've all, we've all started to learn to swim and you start to swallow some of that water and you feel like you're gonna die. You're like, (gasps) like you start like convulsing in the water. We've all had it before where you thought that you were gonna drown in a pool before, but somehow you swim back up to the top. There's gonna come a moment and it requires resilience for you to, to, to grow up and say, I'm gonna ditch the floaties. I'm gonna get rid of the life jacket and I am going to learn to swim. And if you're like my kids, maybe you had a parent, maybe you had a dad that said, I don't care how long it takes, I'm just gonna throw you in the pool and you are going to figure it out. And I love taking my kids to the pool and all of the experience that that you can have at the pool, you don't get to experience the joys of it by sitting at the edge or by standing by the steps or by watching from a distance, like there is so much more to experience and enjoy if you would just step up, get onto that diving board and jump into the water. And where we're at in 2 Peter chapter one today, we see Peter give this reminder for the early church and for you and for me that those of us in this Christian life that wanna stand resilient, we have to learn how to step out of the comfort of shallow Christianity ditch the life jacket, and dive into the endless pursuit of knowing the God of the universe. See, because resilient disciples know that there is always more of God to know. And that life is best lived when we move from stagnant faith to a growing and maturing faith in Jesus. 
And so last week we wrapped up the first book of Peter, 1 Peter. Today we're jumping into 2 Peter, starting in verses 1 through 15. And as we journey through these books, we're looking at these books through the lens of how to follow Jesus in a world that's falling apart. See, for Peter in the early church he was originally writing to, their, their world was falling apart. Like he's right in between 65 and 68 AD. And in, these fifth, and in verse 15 that we just read, he mentions his eminent departure. He's saying, hey, yo, I know that I am about to die. I know that my time on this earth is limited. I know that I am on my deathbed essentially right now. He was in Rome and he's writing from Rome and he's facing the persecution of Emperor Nero and he's seeing Christians around him burned alive, fed to lions, rejected by society and persecuted for their faith. And in 2 Peter, this is his deathbed message, if you will, for you and for me. And this is how he starts it off. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, Simeon Peter, a servant an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, I got a little mini message for you real quick. Underline that word servant, servant. See, it's important for us to understand that Peter's identity in Jesus superseded the call that Jesus had placed on his life. Like this is a reminder for you and for me that before I am anything else, I am a servant of Jesus. Before I am a husband, I am a servant of Jesus. God has called me to father my kids, but before I am a father, I am a servant of Jesus. God has called me to pastor. Before I'm a pastor, I am a servant of Jesus. Before you are at whatever it is that you would give yourself as a title or a label, you are a servant first of Jesus. Before you're a mom, before you're a salesman, before you are a coworker, an employee, or a boss, you are a servant of Jesus, before you're a teacher, before you are a friend, before you are a father, you are first a servant of Jesus. He lists that he's a servant before he lists that he's an apostle to remind you and me his identity in Jesus. See, our activity always flows from our identity. And then he continues on. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes again, you got your Bible. I want you to underline that word equal, of equal standing. He's saying that there is nothing that I have. There is no level of intimacy that I have with God that you do not have access to as well. You and I can talk to God the same way that Peter talked to God. You and I can walk daily with Jesus just like Peter was doing at that time. There is no level of access that he has that we do not have to get to know God deeper. He says of equal standing. We get to worship God the same way. We have equal standing. And then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Okay, I want you to underline again that word multiplied. Now, Pastor Joey, he had us underline this word at the very first week of this series, Resilient. And he said, put a date next to it. So I want you to put a date next to it, circle it, underline it. We're gonna come back to this in just a few weeks. But the important thing to note about this word multiplied right now is that the grace and peace that Jesus brings to your life is not meant to mint to just be merely received like some package on your front porch from Amazon that just kind of sits there for a little bit and then you kind of bring it inside and you kind of wait a little while to open it. I don't know about you, but sometimes that thing's sitting out there for a few days and you got that package that you just received. No, no, no. He says, the grace and the peace that I bring to your life, it's meant to multiply. It's meant to move beyond you. It's meant to grow in your life. Multiplied. See, this is the deathbed message from Peter for you and for me. He says that we would grow in the knowledge of God. If you're taking notes, the title for the message today is In the Knowledge of God. He wants us to grow in knowing God. Warren Buffett, um, he's regarded as one of the greatest investors to ever live with a net worth of over $144 billion today. 
Wouldn't you just love to have a few moments to sit down with Warren Buffett as he's near the end of his life? Like, what if you got to just sit with him for a few hours and ask him all the questions? Like, surely he's written some books and he shared a lot of his knowledge, but I feel like there's some secrets, some secrets to his investing, some secrets to how he deals with money that he could share with you and deposit in you and help you a lot in this life. It could help you get some money. It could help you be more successful. What about Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs, what if you had a few moments before he had passed away to sit down with him near the end of his life? And what if you could just ask him some questions? Like, I would have a lot of questions. First off, I would ask, like, were those vision goggles originally your idea? Like those big things, y'all seen those things? I would be like, Steve, those are ugly. They're ugly. You should have made some goggles like this, put on people's face. Like, I would ask him so many different questions. I would ask him, like, what happened to the iPod shuffle? Anyone else ever have an iPod shuffle? It was great. I mean, like, why did y'all get rid of it? But I feel like you could ask this man some questions about innovation and creativity, and he could help you be more successful in your work and in your career and what you're doing. He could help you a lot in this life. But Peter right here, in 2 Peter, he's writing as an expert on following Jesus. And he's writing for you and me. And he's giving us insight on how he talked with Jesus. And he's, he's writing, he was an expert because he saw the miracles. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He experienced all of it. And he's giving his advice for you and for me of what it looks like to live a life with eternal significance in a world that is obsessed with living for the temporary. A life that glorifies God. A life that loves people no matter how the hostile cultural climate is around them. And he's giving them expert advice on experiencing life as God intended. Peter's deathbed words for you and for me are that more than anything, that we would never stop growing in our knowledge of God. He's like, hey, I get that you're being ostracized. I get that your faith has pushed you to the fringes of society. I get that culturally you may have been canceled. I get that you're being persecuted by the Roman government and that you're living so counterculturally that the masses have labeled you as a danger to humanity. This is the people that he was writing to. This is what they were experiencing in Rome. And this is what I believe we will be experiencing not too far from now. This isn't far off in the distant future. And Peter says, don't stop seeking to know more of God. See, this world is wanting you and me to know about anything and everything other than the story of God. Like there is a battle being waged for your attention and for your devotion where sports and success and screens are just, they're after our hearts and they've got our eyes and they've got our minds and and they've got our attention, and many of us don't even realize it. There's a war being waged for you to just keep swiping. Because the enemy knows if you just keep swiping, then he'll just keep corroding your faith, distorting your worldview, and distracting you from the things of God. And Peter uses this word knowledge here. And he uses it 13 times in this letter, knowledge or no. And it speaks to more than just this intellectual knowledge about the things of God is it is an experiential knowledge it's about living participation in the truths of God that we that we work with God in what he is doing to know him more see resilient Christians know that an unrelenting pursuit of knowing God is foundational to our faith that in order to stand resilient we have to be committed to a never settling pursuit of knowing God Jesus makes it clear for us and his heart for us in, in John, 17 chapter, or John 17, verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, in Jesus' final moments here on this earth, he says, this is it, that you would know God, that you would know me in a real way. You see, resilient disciples understand that I can bend and not break under the pressures of this world because I know that there is always more of God to know. He's like, God, he's wanting us to see that God is like this vast mountain range and that you'll never get tired of exploring. He's like a deep, deep ocean where there's always more to see. He's like this beautiful rainforest that is filled with limitless life and wonder. Like there's always a deeper level of intimacy to discover in knowing God. Did you know that? 
that there's always more of his voice and his presence to get to know and his kindness towards you. There's always a greater level of revelation to discover and understanding God's glory and his heart for you through his word. There's always a deeper level of communion to experience as you come to worship God with the people of God and the presence of God. There's always a deeper level of relationship to build with God through obedience to his ways and through living a transformed life. But I get that we live in a world where not everyone's interested in knowing more about God. You probably know someone or maybe that's you here tonight where the culture around us and our rhythms, the rhythms and habits that we've adopted and that we've formed for so many people, they're not stirring a curiosity for the things of God. Instead, we're being formed more and more into the image of this world rather than knowing more about the God who created us. Like, I want to ask you this question. When was the last time you had just a craving to know more of God? Or when was the last time you had simply like a desire to know more of God? Like maybe that's why some of you are here tonight. You're like, Joe, I'm here because I want to know God more. That's me. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, I haven't experienced that for a little while. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, I've never experienced a craving, a hunger for God. This past week I was preparing for this. As I've been preparing for this message, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of wanting to know God more and this past Tuesday, I was sitting on the couch, and I had the TV on watching the Miami Heat get beat. And, and while I'm watching basketball, I'm also scrolling on my phone through Facebook Marketplace, just looking at random stuff to buy. Y'all ever done that? Just scrolling and scrolling. And I get this deep sense of conviction by the Holy Spirit of, like, what am I doing? And I got this conviction because I feel like at the beginning of this year, I had this, like, deep hunger to like want to know God more. And each and every day I was like, I just want to know more the depths of who you are, God. And that was just like my battle cry at the beginning of this year. But slowly over time, I found that I've become more and more distracted by the things of this world, more and more distraction. And that distraction has then diluted that desire within my heart. And I started to feel this conviction of, I want to know more about the things of God. God, I want to know you more. And I started to ask myself this question, is my heart right now where I'm at wanting to know God more? And if not, what's quenching that desire? What's suppressing that desire? And how can I cultivate that desire again? Well, thankfully, Peter, in this chapter, he gives us some tools for this. He gives us some instruction on how we can grow in the knowledge of God. And he continues in verse three, he says, his divine power, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now we could spend hours just talking about this one verse right here, but I know y'all wanna get to dinner. I know y'all trying to eat and we got 15 verses to go through, but but let's talk for just a second about God's divine power. See, it's God's divine power that created the universe, that hung the stars, that formed the mountains, that filled the seas, that made all of those creatures that you pay a lot of money to go and see at the aquarium or at the zoo, those creatures that you love. God made those, and then he made you and me in his image, to be his image bearers, to have relationship with us. It's by God's divine power that he heals and saves and delivers and sustains everything that is good on this earth. It is God's divine power and God has taken that divine power and he's investing it in us. It says that he has granted to us all things. Turn to your neighbor right now and say all things. All things that pertain to life and godliness. And so don't miss this. God is so committed to your spiritual growth that he's invested his own divine power into giving you everything that you need to live a life of godliness and to grow in the knowledge of who he is through Jesus. I was trying to think of ways to illustrate this, and I had like a million different analogies I started writing out, and each analogy that I started to write, I was like, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't 
truly capture like all of God's divine power. And so I'd write another one. And I was like, that doesn't capture his divine power. And over and over and over again. And so to put it very simply, this is what I have about God's divine power. The star bursting, galaxy forming God of the universe has taken his divine power and he has placed it in you through his son, Jesus. That's God's power. The purpose, though, of God's power being invested in you is not merely for you to be successful in this life. It's not for you and I to build up our kingdoms, to accumulate as much money and wealth as we can here on this earth. It's, for, uh, it's to produce godliness within us, that we would grow more into the image of his son and the knowledge of who he is. He says all things. He's saying there is nothing that you and I are missing from him. He's not holding out on us. We don't have to wait around like, God, are you going to give us more revelation about who you are? No, he has given us everything we need through his word, by his spirit, and with the people of God. He says, you have all things. In Psalm 21, 3, the most famous psalm there is, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I lack nothing. When Jesus is your shepherd, you have all that you need. In Romans 8, 32, Apostle Paul, he says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him also freely give us all things? Like this is what God says, but how often do we live powerless, anxious, fearful, self-reliant, chilling in the kiddie pool kind of lives, void of meaning and and the truth is that by Jesus, through his spirit, God has put his glory in us. See, by the power of the cross, Jesus' righteousness is counted to us as our righteousness. Like how crazy is that? It's this wildly remarkable mystery that God would say, hey, you who are broken, you who are sinful and helpless, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to redeem you. And through my son, Jesus, I'm going to put my power within you. Like we sang earlier, our God is able. He's able. And as we're about to talk about, God expects some things of us. He expects us to attempt to live life by his power. And he enables us to achieve this through his power being in us. In verse, chapter, in verse 4, he continues on. He says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. We sang about his promises tonight too. You can underline that word promises. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So let's talk about promises. God's promises are like checks written for you and me. Y'all know what checks are, right? How many of you, I just, I'm just curious, have never written a check before? Have you never written a check before? A few of you? Okay, I knew there would be at least like one person in the room that had never written a check. Okay, uh, I was at a bachelor party a few years ago and came time at the end of the party where we were going to settle up, you know, like pay for the Airbnb and all the food and everything. And, and um, this one guy named Josh is who paid for everything. And so we're supposed to pay Josh. And so I go up to Josh and I was like, hey, Josh, um, I don't have any cash, man. Uh, can I Venmo you? And he was like, no, you can write me a check. I was like, what? Yeah, he, do you have Zelle? Like, can I Zelle you? You got Cash App? No, you can write me a check. I was like, a what? What are you talking about? He was like, you can write me a check. I was like, do you got Apple Pay? Like, wire transfer? Like, come on, you got to help me out. He was like, no, you can write me a check. I was like, Josh, I don't have a check. <laughs> Who has checks? You just walk around with a checkbook? Like, are you crazy? What is this? We don't deal with checks anymore, but God's promises are like checks for you and for me. And this check is like a promise. Peter says that these promises are very great because it's through the promises of God that Jesus came. And it's through the promises of God that we experience his divine nature. And if God writes a check, it's getting cashed. You can take it to the bank. Like me, on the other hand, if I wrote you a check, a million bucks. I could write you a check right now for a million dollars. Do you think it's getting cashed? That thing is not getting cash, but God's promises can be taken to the bank because he's delivered time and time again. And Peter is wanting to remind you and me today that our God, he can be trusted. 
He's good on his promises. His promises are backed by his divine power, the same power that split seas, trampled enemies, and resurrected the Son of God. My God has the power behind the promise. And God has placed that promise in our hands. In our hands. He's placed his promises in our hands. We're supposed to use these promises. We're supposed to take these promises to the bank. We're not supposed to just take these promises and put them in a drawer and forget about them and, and never look at them. No, no, no. His promises are good and they're very great is what Peter says. And we're supposed to apply his promises to our lives. And so Peter, in this first part of this chapter, he's wanting you and me to know that God has done his part for us. In this knowing of God, like God has laid it all out there. He said, I've done my part. We have everything we need to know and experience as much of God as we want. And so what's our response? What's our part to play in this journey? And some of y'all, you're like, well, Joe, if we have everything we need, why do we need to do anything? Like, why do anything then, right? If we have everything we need, what do we need to do? Because the reality is, is that growth takes cooperation. He says we are partakers, we are partners. And we aren't partners if we have no part to play in this journey of life and faith. See, it's God's operation, but we get to choose to take part in what God is doing. Like how beautiful is that? That in Jesus we get to join God in his work of rescuing the world. In Jesus we get to join God in his work of transforming lives. That God, he's sovereign over all things. He is in control, but he is so gracious that he's invitational to invite us to be a part of his plans. It's so beautiful. I love how one commentator says, he says, The lost sinner is decaying because of his corrupt nature. But the Christian can experience a dynamic life of godliness because God has placed his divine nature within us. We've got his nature, and he's invited us to participate in what he's doing. It's like this tidal wave of God's divine power and nature have washed over our souls, and it's meant to change us from the inside out. It's meant to change how we live. We're meant to step into this journey with God. And then he says in verse 5, For this very reason... Make every effort, underline that, every effort, to supplement, you can underline that word as well, your faith. Make every effort. See, growth is not just the invitation, it's the expectation. And we're not talking about salvation. You don't work to earn your salvation. That's the free gift that we receive from God. It cost, every, it cost God his one and only son so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could know God and be made right with God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's what we believe. Salvation is a gift. But sanctification, this idea of being made more into the image of Jesus, that requires teamwork. It requires cooperation. It says make every effort. Listen, we've got to understand that you will never accidentally grow spiritually. It's not going to just happen by happenstance, like you are never going to wake up one morning and be like, wow, I just know so much more about God today. Whoa, like all of that sin I was struggling with, it's just gone. Like, I don't know what happened, but like yesterday, I didn't, I barely knew who God was. Now I just know God so deep, like that does not happen. Growth requires intentional work. Philippians, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we've got to understand there is no, like, let go and let God in the resilient Christian's faith journey. Like, that's not a thing. Like, we step into this journey with God, and there's two overarching principles about spiritual growth that I need you to know about tonight. Number one, your spiritual growth has nothing to do with your physical age. Charles Spurgeon, he's quoted saying that there are children in the church of God that are 70 years old. But at the same time, there are wise, mature, deep, resilient followers of Jesus that are young. Number two, you can know as much about God as you want to know. You can. You can spend as much time with Jesus as you want to spend. And faith, we got to remember, is this muscle. 
It's a muscle that we need to work out. And Peter is wanting you and me to know that in order to see resilient faith, it's going to require intentional growth. It's that spiritual growth is not automatic. It requires cooperation with God and the application of spiritual disciplines and diligence. He says that we need to supplement or add to our faith. It's said that LeBron James, he spends over a million dollars a year on his body. Look how crazy is that? But do you think that all of that million dollars goes to just him working out in the gym? No. Like that's on his diet, his nutrition, his recovery, and the supplements that he takes so that his body is in prime condition so that he can dominate in the league for over 20 years. He's got to add to that working out. Now, I don't know much about actual supplements. And I was going to, like, do a bunch of research to try to, but I don't know. I don't know anything about supplements, okay? But I do know about this one thing that I add to everything that I eat, and it's a thing called hot sauce. How many of y'all like hot sauce? (laughs) And for me, I add hot sauce to every single meal that I eat. Like, if you've ever eaten with me or even near me, you know that I have this obsession with sauce. Like, when we go to a restaurant, I'm the guy that's like, hey, can I get some sauce? Can, can I have your hottest hot sauce that you have? And they'll bring me, like, Texas Pete. I'm like, no, no, no. I want you to make something, like, special for me in the kitchen. The hottest thing that you have. Like, I ordered a chimichanga from this place, this taco place on Friday. And I'm ordering it. And I was like, hey, can I get some of your hot sauce? And she gives me, like, a little thing. And I was like, no, no, no. You misunderstood me. I need all of your spiciest hot sauce. I need a huge container of it. Like that is how much that I eat because I need to add it to my food because for me, my food is incomplete unless I add that to it. And he is saying right now, Peter's saying that you need to add to your faith. You need to supplement these qualities to your faith. And this is what is going to lead to a resilient faith that'll help you follow Jesus in a world that is falling apart. It's that my faith is what saves me, but supplementing is what sustains me. And he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with these things. He says, supplement your faith in verse 5 with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. See, right here, Peter is orchestrating this beautiful symphony of grace. And he says, faith is where it all begins. But our faith is made to move. It's meant to grow. It can't stay still. For the musical people in the room, like faith, it's like the time signature. It's like the tempo. It's like the key that the song is in. It's like that hook to the melody or the chorus that everything else is building upon. Faith, everything else, faith is the foundation for everything in the life of a resilient follower of Jesus and everything built on it. Faith in Jesus is what separates us, just so you know, from every other religion in this world, from all other people. It's faith in Jesus, the exclusivity of Christ. He says all of these qualities are building on one another towards this great crescendo or climax in love. Peter's saying these are the supplements that you and I need to take if we're going to live a life that matters, a resilient life. He starts with virtue. Now, virtue is this, like moral excellence or simply a goodness. And we are living today in a time where morality is corroding, where right and wrong are merely subjective and your truth is your truth and doesn't really matter if your truth uh, affects anyone else. And there's this movement in society void of morality, and I believe that we are closer than we realize to seeing that happen even more. And I want to be clear, though, that Christians, we're called to be so much more than good people, but we should absolutely be good people in the eyes of this world. Like, we should be attractive because of our goodness, our moral excellence, our virtue. We should aim to live holy and good lives, not out of religiosity to try to earn God's love, but out of a response because of how God has loved us, because of him putting his nature in us, we live with this level of virtue, of moral excellence. And then he builds towards knowledge, mentions knowledge again. In a world that is wanting you to merely grow in your education, grow in how to succeed, grow in how to gain success and status. God is calling us towards a greater knowledge. This is a knowledge that comes from the Holy Spirit that's focused on the person of Jesus 
is found in the word of God. We grow through meditating on the word of God. We grow through living in the ways of Jesus. And we grow through walking with the people of Jesus here in this world by the spirit of God. And then we add self-control. Self-control. Self-control is what bridges the gap between what you know and what you do. Self-control is so important for the people of God. It's that we would have our passions under control, which is completely countercultural to the Roman culture that Peter was writing to and that these Christians were living in. Like we talked a lot about this in this series, that the Roman sexual ethic was grossly distorted and there was no desire, there was no urge that the Romans did not indulge in. It was a sinful and sin-filled society that didn't value or respect people, that you just did what you wanted, however you wanted. People did not exercise self-control. And Peter's saying, we are going to be people of self-control. He's saying, you're going to live different, and you need to put your knowledge into action by not being overcome by your lusts and your desires. And then he moves towards steadfastness, which is this idea of not giving in or giving up under the pressures and the weight of the culture around you. It's similar to this idea of resilience, like we've been talking about, or perseverance. And then he moves towards godliness. Someone say godliness. Godliness, which is this pursuit of reverence and holiness towards God. Like we talked about a few weeks ago that we are called to be holy like our God is holy. That we're called to be set apart, distinct in nature. And then Peter makes a shift here. These first few virtues are all about how we relate to God. And then he makes a shift towards how we relate to the people around us. He moves towards brotherly affection. Let me hear you say brotherly affection. And this is a fervent, practical caring for others. This is where we see that Greek word Philadelphia. Like this is why Philly is called the city of brotherly love. Uh, Leslie and I, we had the opportunity to go to Philly a few weeks ago, and I don't know about opportunity. Philly's a weird place compared to Atlanta. But I'm not so sure that the people of Philly live out this brotherly affection term. Uh, we, Leslie really wanted to get a cheesesteak, um, they call them steaks there, um, from one of the most famous cheesesteak places in Philly, and because um, you do that when you're in Philly. And um, it turns out that there was this like car festival right around these places. And so we waited in traffic for like an hour and the kids have fallen asleep. The cars aren't moving. We're stuck there. And so I just send my wife out to go get the cheesesteaks. She's like, I'm going to go do a walkabout and go get the cheesesteaks and I'll meet you back at the car. And so she goes to walk to go get them. And I mean, it takes like 30, 45 minutes. I'm like wondering, I'm tracking her the whole time on my phone, like making sure she's okay. And finally she makes it back to the car and she comes and gets in the car. She closes the door and I just see this face of like terror on it. She just sits down and just like, and I was like, Les, are you okay? What happened? And she goes, they are so mean. (laughs) She was like, they were so rude and they were just yelling at me and I don't even know what I ordered. Here's our food. I don't know if it's right, but here you go. I was like, they are not practicing brotherly affection in Philly talks about this idea of of being endearing, of caring for one another. It's that when people encounter you and me as followers of Jesus, they should experience this level of care that is unlike the people around them. They should experience love and care when they see us in restaurants or at work or at the park or at home or even while we're driving on 285. Like we should have this level of brotherly affection. And then Peter ends with this symphony of grace. He ends with love, love. Now this is agape love. This is a love that desires the highest good for others. This is sacrificial love. This is the kind of love that God demonstrates to us when he sends his one and only son, Jesus, to the cross to die for sinners so that we can be made right with God. This is agape love right here. So our lives, they begin with faith. Our spiritual journey begins with faith, and it moves towards this love. Then he says in verse 8, he says, For if these qualities, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge, underline that again, of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Listen, no one wants to live a life that is ineffective or unfruitful. Like no one just wakes up and is like, man, for the rest of my life, every day, I just want to do nothing. I just want to accomplish nothing. Like that would be a wasted life. He's saying right here that the secret sauce to a life of resilience is a realization that you've never arrived. That there should be this commitment towards growth, that there is this, that an arrived mentality will not allow you to stand resilient in this life. There's this famous quote that many people have tweaked by a guy named William Burroughs, and it says, when you stop growing, you start dying. Other people would say, where there is life, there must be growth. What you feed grows, what you starve dies. Growing things grow and stagnant things grow mold and die. Everyone gets this principle. It's not even just a merely Christian principle. Everyone gets and understands this. That's why so many people, they live their lives for retirement. And then what happens after they retire? They slowly just start to die because a lack of a pursuit of growth leads to death. And he's saying that we need to practice these qualities. It's that being born again is not the end. It's just the beginning for you and me. There's no coasting in the Christian life. Like this world and everything around you, we have to realize, is pulling you further and further away from knowing God. And Peter wants it to be clear that if we want to stand resilient and have a faith that matters, it has to be increasing. It has to be growing. One of the things that I love about Caden Dolmage, who's on our staff team, is Caden has this just never-ending desire to want to know more about the things of God. And Caden has this unique gift to be able to ask a question at any time and in any place with anyone. He always has a question to ask, in which leadership tip for you. If you want to grow in your leadership, always have a question to ask. And Caden is a master question asker, and he's also, he has this uh, such just positive desire to want to know God more. Like Caden is always reading a book on theology. He's always listening to some podcasts and he'll come in in the morning and man, I was just meditating on this, this word this morning and I was just reading in the Greek and the Hebrew all about what this verse means and how it's going to change my life. He's always wanting to grow in this knowledge of God. And what we need in our church today is more Caden Dolmages that have this desire, this hunger. I'm waking up in the morning and I want to know more about my God. And I want that knowledge to transform my life. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, which if you've never read this book, you should write it down and uh, get this book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He says this about this. He says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It's that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, which leads to prayer and praise to God. So we would take these truths that we know about God and we would meditate on them. And that meditation would move towards prayer and praise to God. And that's what changes and transforms our life. And Peter says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter's got a lot of ifs in this first chapter. If you practice these things. See, that Greek word for fall or stumble means to trip up or to experience a reversal. And what he's not saying is that you need to live this perfect life. And he's not saying that you're going to lose your salvation if you're not perfect. What he's saying is that it's difficult to experience reversal when you're moving forward. Like no one is driving down the road with their car in drive and just suddenly you just end up going backwards. No, if you're moving forward, it's hard to find yourself moving backwards. That's why we have a call to not just coast in this life. And God isn't wanting us to question our salvation but to confirm it with the way that we live. He's saying, stop walking around like you used to. Stop living as though you're blind. He said to Lazarus, take your grave clothes off. To Lazarus, he said, take them off. Step out of that tomb. Walk in the newness of what Jesus has done for you. He's saying eternity is at hand. And if you're not growing closer to God, then you're moving further away from him. And so we need to be asking ourselves this question that if I'm not growing closer to God, then I got to go back to and visit 
the strength of my faith and maybe I need to grow in my level of faith and belief and trust in God so that I continue to move closer towards him. We should ask ourselves this question, if I'm not growing, what's the problem? What's happening right now in my life? That we need to be reminded like we read every single week during this series that he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that every day that we're adding these qualities to our lives, we're confirming our call and our salvation. And then he continues in verse 11 and we'll land here. For in this way, in this way, living this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, resilient disciples always have an eternal mindset, an eternal perspective. Peter's like, everything that you're doing right now in this life is preparation for the next. And so build today, live today with heaven in mind. The Greeks use this word uh, entrance. It would, in other translations, it's an abundant entrance. It's used to describe an Olympic athlete who had won in the games and then they return home and they would be greeted by this abundant entrance. Their town would show up with music and singing and dancing and they would throw this incredible party and cheers and, and it would just be this big celebration to welcome him or her back home. It's this word right there. It's what it's describing. In 1965, Robert Manry, uh, sailed from Massachusetts across the Atlantic to England. And he did this on a tiny 13 and a half foot sailboat. It's just a little bit bigger than a surfboard. And Robert, he uh, was the first to do this. It took him uh, 78 days in this small little boat. And during this journey, it got so rough at, at some points that he literally had to rope himself to his boat so that he would stay with it in the midst of the storms. He would have to stay awake for days at a time. 78 days was the journey. Stay awake for days at a time to make sure that he would stay alive. And all he could think about of when he got home was to be able to get a shower and get some food and change his clothes and take a nap, get some sleep. But when he got home, he was, when he arrived in England, he was greeted by this incredible entrance, this abundant entrance, this celebration of more than 300 boats and 12,000 people that gathered in England to watch him arrive. He's greeted with his wife and he hugs and kisses his wife and his family. And then they bring him up these stairs and they parade him through this crowd and they get down to the street and they literally make this massive parade to celebrate this feat that he had traveled across the Atlantic Ocean in the smallest boat that anyone had ever done. This incredible feat, this magnificent journey. And he's greeted with that epic celebration, this abundant entrance. And I was thinking about this, do you think Robert when he was greeted by that entrance, was thinking about a shower? Do you think Robert was like, man, I can't wait to get to the hotel, and man, I just wanna take my shoes off, and I just wanna get some food. No, he was celebrating. He was entering into this massive party that was thrown to welcome him out of the sea and onto the shore. And when we think about eternity, that when we arrive at the shores of eternity, having lived a resilient life for Jesus, a life of faith, a life of virtue, a life of knowledge, of self-control, of steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, after we have lived that way and we received the crown of glory that we spoke about a few weeks ago, and when you look Jesus in his eyes, and see him face to face and he says, well done my good and faithful servant. You won't be thinking about the pain that we experienced here on this life. We won't, ex we won't be thinking about the loss or the embarrassment or the heartbreak that we suffered for the sake of Christ. No, the weight and the worries of this world will wash away in the glory and the splendor of who God is and the future that awaits us in heaven. That's what awaits us, this abundant entrance. He says, live like this, and this is what's coming. If you would live this way, this is the celebration that is coming in heaven. 
one evangelist, he says this. He says, will your entrance into heaven be like that? Speaking about this verse, will you enter it, save so as by fire or to receive a reward? Will you come unrecognized and unknown or be welcomed by scores and hundreds to whom you have been the means of blessing and who will wait you there? So when we stand before Jesus on the, as we step into eternity, I believe that we're gonna look him in the eyes and he's gonna ask us two questions. Number one, did you know me? And number two, what did you do to make me known? And this level of celebration, this entrance that we're gonna receive, I believe that that second question, what did you do to make me known, is gonna determine who's there to celebrate with us as we step into the shores of eternity, that there would be the people, the loved ones, the people that you shared the gospel with, the people that you did everything that you could by your power to make sure that they spent eternity knowing God as well, that you did whatever it took to say, hey, I know this Jesus, and I wanna help to make sure that you know this Jesus, and so I wanna live my life to know Jesus and to make him known towards everyone that I come in contact with, so that I will see this beautiful, abundant, rich entrance in heaven as we are greeted with this celebration as crowds gather to see those who have been touched by Jesus as well. See, resilient disciples have this sort of perspective. And they know that a never-ending pursuit of knowing God is worth everything. Worth everything. Do you know him? And what do you do to make him know? Let's pray. God, I'm just blown away that you would give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God, that you would invest your divine power into us, that you would take our sinful nature and replace it with your divine nature. God, that you would Lavish us with love through your son, Jesus. God, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that we have to get to know the God of the universe, the star-bursting, galaxy-forming God of the universe. God, that you are the everlasting God, that you do not faint or grow weary, that your wisdom is unsearchable, and that you give strength to those who are weak. God, that you would see us as sinful and helpless and say, I want to make you new. And that you would reach out your arm, that you would pick us up and that we don't have to live this life wondering and striving to earn your love, but that you pour it out on us and that we get to spend our lives living to know you that it's a gift, that it's a joy, that it's not a burden, that each and every morning we have an opportunity, God, to wake up and say, I want to know you more. And God, I pray that that would be the cry of your people here at Elevate City Church. God, that this city would look different because of a people who are so hungry for the things of God and hungry for the ways of God and hungry to know you more, that this city would look different because of the way that we know you and the level of intimacy that we have with you and the way that it impacts the way that we live here on this life and in this earth. God, I just pray that you would stir in each of us a greater hunger for knowing you today, that we would leave here recognizing that you give us everything that we need to know you and that we would live our lives to know you and to make you known. 